Hi, my name is Jesse Cadden, and I've devoted my life to figuring out what goes into making great albums. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present Inside the Album, where we get to go deeper on how your favorite artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the musicians and the team behind them that helped craft these records while getting to know the little secrets that go into making great music. On this episode, we'll be discussing the original cast recording of Jagged Little Pill. Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill is her third studio album and holds the distinction of being one of the best-selling albums of all time after selling over 33 million copies. Released in 1995, it became one of the benchmark albums in pop for the level of vulnerable emotions that needed to be delivered in order to connect with an audience, as well as bringing the New Jack Swing sound into dance pop for a solo white artist. This vulnerable emotion seems to be why this record has been a touchstone in the two and a half decades since its release, and why it's been necessary to recontextualize it with the new hit Broadway musical adaptation. Enlisting the help of story writer Diablo Cody, who's known for her work on movies like Juno, Tully, and Young Adult, the record has a new depth brought to it through this musical adaptation that audiences are responding to with immense enthusiasm. As I set out to make this audio documentary, I realized there's very few records where everyone alive during that time was in some way affected by the record. So I wanted to start at the inception point with the original album's producer, Glenn Ballard, talking about why so many people have felt a strong emotional reaction to this record. The astonishing thing is that Alanis, as a singer and as an artist and as a writer, she's connected to her emotions. She goes straight to it. There are very few barriers between her and what she's feeling and what she wants to say. So that kind of clarity coming from the artist is, is you start with this great gift of somebody who's emotionally honest, kind of not really being able to be any other way. So, yeah, there was always emotion, first of all, in her voice, the way she uses her voice. And the intention of everything that she was singing was so personal and so visceral, a great instrument to communicate her ideas. So that's the gift, her voice and her brain. We got together 20 times in 1994 and 1995, and we wrote 20 songs, and we recorded those 20. And those are the basis for Jagged Little Pill. Everything that we did in that one-day setting became the record. We did some overdubs on those, but literally every single one and it literally every single vocal she did at the end of the night. And it's by far the most handmade, unpremeditated record I could have ever made. And we really looked at them as recordings. You could call them demos. We just thought of them as these are the recordings that make us happy. It was just pleasing our own you know, taste levels before anyone ever heard it. There was not a record company involved. And so it was just the two of us. Since this is a record that has affected so many people in such an intense way emotionally, I was curious what he meant by this. So I asked him to talk a little bit more about why this record came out to be so emotionally intense. If I really think about this, I, I think it was a record that we made from the inside out and not from the outside in. We weren't referencing any other music. We weren't trying to be in the marketplace. We weren't listening to the latest hit and trying to write it sideways. Really, we didn't even talk about any of that. We just went, I mean, I think we were unsupervised. We didn't have anybody to say, this is a product that we need to have do this or that. So the, the creative freedom involved with that when you don't have an agenda had everything to do with why this record is the way it is. But most of what makes this record so special is the people who experienced it. So I first talked to Elizabeth Stanley, who plays the female lead, Mary Jane, about her memories of the record. I mean, of course, <laughs> I was familiar with it. It came out when I was in high school. And so, you know, it definitely reminds me of 
being in the car. I think I had just learned to drive or my friends had. So it early memories of like being in the car without other adults um, and being able to like, play music really loudly is my very visceral memory of this album. Here's actor Sean Allen Krill, who plays Mary Jane's husband, talking about what Jagged Little Pill means to him. Oh, I'm, I mean, Jagged Little Pill was, Alanis and I are about the same age. I'm a couple years older, I think. This album was just extremely, hugely formative for me in my, my early 20s. It took me through the biggest breakup of my life and then a year, a year and a half later into one of the most beautiful relationships of my life. That album encompasses all of those feelings, you know, the, of course, the anger of you ought to know, but then also some really beautiful, you know, love songs, joyful, just expressions of so many human feelings that we have, especially when we're younger. I found it so interesting that as a middle-aged man now and playing the role of Steve, the father in the show, just how well these songs translate to, you know, to those feelings that we continue to grapple with through our whole lives. That's one of the most beautiful things about the show or about the, uh, about the music that Alanis wrote is that it continues to be so pertinent, relevant. And here's orchestrator Tom Kitt, who was tasked with bringing the music of the record into the show, talking about what his relationship with the record was. I just think of college. I remember I, w- I would go to my friend's dorms, went to Columbia, and at that time I, I was dreaming of both being a singer-songwriter and uh, having a-, a career as a-, as a musical theater composer. I just remember first seeing the You Ought to Know video. Alanis was-, was all over MTV, which we would watch in between classes. I think I've-, I've said this before, but it was like this new force was in the world, and you-, you wanted to get as much of it as you could. You wanted to really dissect it and, and-, and learn about where it was coming from and where it was going, and, and Alanis was just so generous with her art and how she shared it with the world. And you could just really hear the passion and creativity behind what, what she and Glenn made. Those kinds of albums where you have, you know, five, six, seven, how many top 10 singles came out of that record. It's just, and, and even the ones that weren't necessarily released as singles. I mean, it's just one of those albums that top to bottom, every song is a gem. In terms of, of a musical, that's what any composer tries to create is each song carves out its important path in the musical and Jagged Little Pill came fully formed in that way. While Tom gives great credit to what Glenn and Alanis made in the studio, Glenn gives a lot of credit to what the Broadway adaptation brought to the stage. It would be disingenuous of me to to suggest that when we wrote this 25 years ago that we had this musical in mind. (laughs) We did not. Let me start by saying that. And it's only through the genius of Diablo Cody and our great director and musical directors that Diane Paulus and Tom Kitt have taken this raw material and and found reconfigured a story around it. And it's one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed in my professional career. And it act, the fact that it's around my own work is even more astonishing. But I would have been astonished to see this anyway, because, you know, this is 25 years later, and yet it feels like we wrote it for the show. I've done a bunch of these documentaries about musicals. I think it's always interesting that each story about how they come together is different. So I wanted to find out how each person came to be a part of this show. First up is director Diane Paulus, who's known for her work on both Hair and Waitress. So Vivek Tiwari, who's one of our lead producers, is an old friend. He invited me out to breakfast and over the breakfast table, he said, what about Jagged Little Pill becoming a musical? And you know, it took me about 30 seconds to say, yes, I'm in. I had known that album when it came out in the 90s, and I immediately sensed this visceral, theatrical 
uh, potential within that album that I was completely intrigued and convinced could work. So I left that breakfast, went home, played the album, called my team at the ART, that's the American Repertory Theater at, at Harvard, and said, I think we have our next big musical project. At that first breakfast, Vivek said a few things to me. He said, Alanis doesn't want this to be a biopic kind of show. She doesn't want this to be about her life, which I thought was great because we have a lot of those on Broadway. Uh, They're terrific, but, you know, I was appreciative of her wanting to create something original with this album. Immediately, that means you need a writer to make an original story. So we started the search and hunt for a writer. The other thing he mentioned to me at that breakfast was the fact that The only other person on board at that point was Tom Kitt, who was a longtime uh, friend and collaborator of X and someone I had always been wanting to work with. And, And Tom was on board to do the musical arrangements. Here's Tom Kitt, who's known for his work on musicals like Next to Normal and American Idiot to continue the story. Vivek pitched me the idea of Jagged Little Pill. He said it's come into his life and would I be interested in it? And it didn't take me even a second to commit to it because I was so excited by the idea. I love the album. You know, it was, it was kind of a, a game-changing album for me. The thought of being able to work on it creatively and, and help to adapt it for, uh, to adapt it as a musical was, was uh, something that I, I had to pinch myself was actually becoming an opportunity for me. So that night I went home, I listened to the album and it just came alive in terms of character in a new way as I started thinking about it as a musical. That was really the first step in terms of my involvement. So when I came on board, I think I was the first member of, of the creative team. Then I was thrilled to hear that Diane Paulus had come on board to direct. Diane and I have been friends a long time and have always mused about working together. So this seemed like the perfect first first collaboration for us. We were dreaming on writers. Someone I had worked with and had been a fan, of course, from just her work, but also uh, getting the chance to be in a room in, in the room with her. I was blown away. Was Diablo Cody? Everyone was really excited about the idea of Diablo. I wrote her an email, and she immediately wrote me back, and things started moving. And the important thing that a musical has to have is, is the book, the story, because as we've seen in the history of musicals, everything has to be working together, and and the book writer, I think, is the unsung hero of the musical. Everything has to be in service of that story and, and how the songs are interwoven. So Diablo came with, with a take on the material. She had a story in her mind. Once we got a sense of that, everything kind of took off because it was just so personal and, and everyone was, was, was feeling it. And that's what you want. You want to bring a writer into the room who says, I have a real feeling from this material and, and this is a road I want to go down and I'm really passionate about it. And you kind of follow that road. And once Diablo knew what that was for herself, we were all just so thrilled by it. Here's Elizabeth Stanley talking about her unique audition for the role of MJ. My audition was actually a self-tape that included the song Forgiven, which is one of the songs my character sings, as well as a couple monologues. And so I just did those in my third bedroom at home <laughs> and submitted it, and then the rest is history. It's one of the simplest auditions I've ever experienced. <laughs> yeah, I basically then they just let me know that I had booked it and that we started rehearsals for the initial lab, which was about two years ago now uh, in November. So I just showed up at rehearsals, <laughs> and that was that. And now Sean Allen Krill is going to talk about the early days of the show for him. Yeah, I auditioned. Diane came into town, you know, she's a very busy woman, and they had a chance to see just a few people for the role of Steve. They sent the script to me to see if I was interested, and I read it, and I just fell in love with it. And Mary Jane and So Unsexy, I'm not even joking, are literally my two favorite Alanis songs, so I could 
I couldn't even believe it when I was reading the script that that character sings those two songs. And so, of course, then I was like, oh, no, now I really want this. And, <laughs> and that you, that usually means you don't get it. I was very inspired and just fell in love with the script that Diablo Cody created. It's just such a beautiful role, and it's a privilege to perform it. And so I just tried to focus on that, and, and I guess it worked. So that's how I, uh, that's how I got on board. Next thing I knew, I was I was I found out several days later that I that I got it, and um, and then very quickly I was in rehearsals for the production at ART. So now that we know how everybody came to be involved, I turned to Diane to talk about the early development of the show. So in the initial uh, first months on the project, Tom and I just got together and we would literally sit at a table in my house and we would play the album and we'd listen to it over and over and over. And we talked about every song. We talked about what we heard in the songs. We talked about the themes. We talked about whether we heard the song as a solo or whether there was room for ensemble singing, what might be the theatrical division of a song. In other words, how do you put it into characters, duets, trios, ensemble, chorus? And and this was not knowing what our story was. We were just sort of getting to know the music together. And then Diablo Cody had been on a short list of writers from the get-go when Vivek had launched this idea with with Arvin David, our other uh, lead producer. They later brought on Eva Price, and now we have this amazing trio of producers that are taking care of the show and, and shepherded it to Broadway. But at the time, Tom and I were thinking, who's the best person? Diablo originally, I think years before, when Vivek was just starting to get the rights and inquired about Diablo Cody, she was not available. She she lives out in L.A. She has a big Hollywood career in TV and film. But as we thought about the reality of really putting in this, in, this into motion, and because it was produced at the ART originally, we had a production date. You know, I, I can't emphasize how critical that was to the development, to know we had a production coming, and that all of a sudden put the show on a timeline. So we went back to Diablo. I met with Vivek the end of the year 2015. And then we spent the bulk of 2016 just myself meeting with Tom, working on the show. We eventually got Diablo involved by the late summer. And then we were working with her the second half of 2016, like the end of the year into 2017. She wrote the story in a treatment form. We pitched it to Alanis. We went back and forth on story points and musical architecture, right? Because when you write a musical, it's not just a script. It's where do the songs go? How do how does the story lay up a song? You know, what what's the right flow of the songs from Jagged Little Pill? And of course, we were also thinking about other songs that Alanis has written that we wanted to include. So key songs, from some of her other albums, like Thank You, being one of them, Uninvited, which, you know, she won a Grammy for. So we, we knew certain songs. And then Alanis was sending us songs from her whole canon. Like, think about all these songs. So I, I had a document of about 25 songs with all the lyrics printed out of all these songs. And, and Alanis wrote me sort of two or three sentences about, you know, what the song meant and where it might fit in this 
this beginning of a narrative that we had. And so that continued to evolve. We did our first reading in June of 2017. And then over the summer, we completely rewrote the story and hit the ground running in the fall of 2017 with a new story and then put it into production at the ART in the spring of 2018. So in musical theater land, this is actually quite fast. You know, the, the, the lore of musicals is it can take four or five, six, you know, sometimes seven years to get an original musical to Broadway. I mean, in this case, we had the album. So I felt confident it could be on such an accelerated path because the album was there. We had all the music. But there were incredible discoveries on the way. In the summer of 2017, Tom and I flew to Malibu and we met up with Diablo, who lives in L.A., and we all went to Alanis's house. And we spent this, you know, critical two days, like a mind meld, looking at the story, writing it out on a on, on her white dry erase whiteboard. She wrote all the characters on this board, drew lines between all of them, and was psychoanalyzing every character and how to make every storyline deeper and, and richer. And she was playing us songs that had not been released yet that she thought could be used for the musical. So these two incredible songs that are now in the album, uh, Smiling and Predator, which are new songs that we heard for the first time. That was kind of like a, a, a dreamy, surreal experience of being in Alanis' studio and her saying, hey, you want to hear this? And her playing for it, playing it for us. And here's Elizabeth talking about some of Diablo's ideas on how to approach the script. I think when the you know concept was brought to her to create the story to sort of bring this album to life in a, in a new way, she said, Immediately, she knew it was about a woman named Mary Jane because, you know, that's a track on the album and that she was dealing with an addiction. And so I think that, you know, that was the starting point. The, the characters are really in there. And I have found it really, as an actress, Alanis's lyrics are so easily actable. They're really accessible. A lot of times are a character's inner monologue, which I think works really well for communicating on stage. And here's Tom Kitt to tell us about the early days of the musical and how chaotic it is to develop one. I think that, as I said, once once Diablo came in with her initial pitch, her initial treatment of the story, we were really off and running. But the details of that story definitely changed and also the ways in which we were telling that story. So songs got filled out in different ways. We, we maybe changed the characters that were singing within a song, a song that was in the second act at ART was moved to the first act for Broadway, also finding different ways to use transitional material. So I think it's a combination of there are gestures from the very first reading that are still in the musical, and then there are things that we've really learned along the way. And, and, and you just hope, knowing that a musical is going to be it's going to take a number of years, you just hope that, that you're able to chip away at it and that every step that you take, every new gesture tightens, illuminates, clarifies the story that you're trying to tell. And now Elizabeth is going to tell us a little bit about what it was like to work with Alanis on the musical. And I remember Alanis coming to rehearsal for the first time. She was just so generous. Like, there was nothing about her energy that felt like, okay, I'm here to, like, check in and give you some notes on how you're singing my music wrong, you know, like, which she would have been really entitled to do. It just felt like, it truly felt like she was there to receive this gift of a further interpretation of something that she had created um, and that she was, like, really thrilled to 
see it keep growing and expanding. And she's just incredible putting others at ease around her. So there's no, there's never a moment around her when I feel like you're an untouched star. She's really just like incredibly approachable and, and incredibly intelligent. Anytime she speaks, I, I kind of feel like, wow, I need to go look up some of those words. Now Sean's going to talk to us a little bit about the complexity of his character in the show. Well, for me, and I know for the creative staff, Diane, Diablo, Alanis, everyone involved, it was very important to me that Steve and the men in the show represent what men can do to bring about the change that the show is is striving to affect. That has been sort of forefront in my mind. I, I think Steve represents, you know, one of the good guys. That doesn't mean certainly that he always does the correct thing. In fact, very often he doesn't, but he's trying. That is what we were attempting to and have, I believe, achieved very well is uh, this family dynamic and what is that fatherly patriarchal role in this story, how that translates to um, best expressing what the show is trying to say. I think it's very easy to want these kinds of characters to be the bad guys. That's not really the case in this in this particular show. And uh, so it's been interesting to let let these characters be flawed and still let them soar and let them learn from their mistakes. That's what I think is so beautiful about the show is that they all make very human, but the important thing is that they learn from them, you know, and, and keep going and, and trying to get better at being human, you know. And here's Diane talking a little bit more about some of the ideas behind the development of the musical. When you think of Jagged Little Pill, you definitely think about, you know, the intense rage that Alanis was so well known for, right? You know, the you ought to know kind of unleashed female power <laughs> expressed through this kind of anger, right? Like, and when I went back to listen to the album, I was completely overwhelmed by the range of the album, that this rage that one associates with Jagged Little Pill was just one energy in that album that there was so much vulnerability. There was so much inner reflection. Songs like Perfect that I hadn't really remembered that were just, you know, cries for kind of this, you know, a cry for for acceptance of being who you are, you know, with a, with a, a, with a kid and a parent, like that relationship was so strong for me in that song. Um, songs like Mary Jane, these kind of questioning songs of, of trying to understand, you know, what is inside someone that we don't see. You know, all we see is the do not disturb sign on the door, but what is behind that? Um, you know, and then songs like Forgiven that are so passionate, but are really kind of like pointing to this secret cause, which, you know, for me was kind of a theme in the musical. What are we hiding? What is underneath everything that is causing us to behave the way we behave? And how do we denumb ourselves? You know, that was such a theme. Like we're, we're so numbed. We're so protected. We're so, we put up these like coats of armor around us to like present ourselves in the world. And then what we do in that process is you lose, you lose awareness of this secret cause of trauma that might be hidden within you that unless you address it, it's going to come back and and continue to um, haunt you. It was like being a detective listening to the album. Like it was almost like peeling all the layers of the onion and going to all these inner states of Alanis's psyche that's in that album. And then what was really fascinating was was being able to talk to her now, right? Because she was 19 in the 90s when she wrote that album, but we were having conversations with Alanis, you know, now a mother with kids in her 40s, reflecting back on the album and, and what it means today. So 
the fact that we knew we weren't going back to the 90s, we weren't going back to, you know, a biopic about her and what it meant to be Alanis Morissette as a teenager in the 90s. We wanted to do this show set now. We wanted to do it. So that was what, 2017, 18, 19. Like these are the years that was that were feeding us. And, and Alanis was so keen to embrace the contemporary world we're in. So in a sense, we were using the album. I had this image of vertical time. You know, it wasn't linear. It was like, here's this album that existed back then in the 90s. And here's this album that continues to exist today. And like trying to feel the time in the album vertically, which eventually translated itself into the musical in the intergenerational aspect of how the musical is set. There are teenagers, there's this daughter and her friends and this high school energy and these things that are happening to these kids in high school. And then you've got these parents and what's happening to them and the things they're holding on to, they're hiding, and the tension between the generations. So that was a very important dynamic that went into the musical that we were trying to drop into the album. Everybody knows that musicals go through more development than just about any other art form because melding the visuals, the songs, and the scripts takes so much work than everything else. So Diane's going to speak a little bit about that development and how things changed as they went along. There were so many moments, but one magical rehearsal moment was we were working on Head Over Feet. And we knew that, okay, that's the love song. Like, if there's a love song on the album, it's Head Over Feet. So we were thinking about Frankie, the the daughter of the Healy's, having this kind of love affair with this character Phoenix, but the way we were setting that song was right juxtaposed to the scene that Diablo had written in the second act, which was this therapy session between the parents, between Steve and MJ Healy. And so as we started working on the song, we started thinking, what if we deconstructed the beginning of that song, take it out of time, so the beat's not there, and have these lines ricochet back and forth between the younger kids and the older parents. So the older parents are recalling the love they've they had in their life once between each other, right? The lost love between the parents. And then here are these two young teenagers who are just discovering this love. And I'll never forget the day we were in rehearsal. And we're like, okay, you try singing that line. No, now you sing that one. Okay, now, Steve, you take that one. Oh, what if you take that line and you say half of it and then, Phoenix, you finish it. And what if you start this line, MJ, and Frankie finishes it? And we worked. We must have done it 20 different ways. And then when we finally got a version we liked, we're like, let's tape it for Alanis. (laughs) You got your your iPhone out. We made a little scratch recording on the phone and sent it to her to say, you know, what about this? But that was one of those moments that not only was it a discovery of how the album and a song from that album could live differently, it was really a tribute to like what's so great about a theater process, right? The theater is about discovering a rehearsal room. It's really about the, the actors being there with you and the actors knowing those characters at some point in the process better than anyone because they're living them. And then how do you get in there with actors in a room and experiment? I mean, that th- those are the moments I live for as a director. And then I was so, I just felt so lucky to have people like Tom Kitt and Diablo and City Larby Chikawi, our choreographer, all with me and Alanis who were open to it. Like the key thing is how do you stay open to a discovery in the room? 
room, right? You know, you, you, there's just so much you can plot out in your head and write in a script and you get it as strong and as good and as rigorous as you can. But then the, the joy of the theater is what happens in the room, what continues to happen and change in performance. And, you know, the, the show continued to evolve. We, we did it for, I don't know, 10 weeks at ART. We played to sold out audiences. And then we went back into rehearsal before Broadway. And I don't know, we, we made, I would say, like hundreds and hundreds of changes between ART and Broadway. And we were making changes on Broadway up until three days before we opened. And here's Tom talking about making tweaks as an orchestrator. I think a pretty significant change was initially the song Perfect that Nick sings was in the second act. And it was sung in response to revelations, the, the revelation about Bella, what really happened, that Nick witnessed the event. So it was after all of that had come out. And even though you were very much empathetic for Nick at, in that moment because of the, the, the beautiful writing and Derek Lennon's beautiful rendering of the song. It also raised questions because it just seemed like potentially um, a moment where you would question the empathy. I should say question the empathy knowing the role that he played in all of this. Now that song's moved to the first act and it comes at a moment where he's feeling alone, he's feeling the pressure to achieve He's just had a moment with his mother where she's kind of been loving, but also a bit manipulative with him and his, his, has been quietly giving him some pressure and needling him a little bit. So the song now becomes, do I allow myself a bit of freedom? Do I, do I give in to the expectations or do I let my hair down and actually go out and hang out with my friends tonight? Putting that song in a different place now, I think makes it a clearer story for him to tell. And you can really be on board with him in a way that I think when we were at ART, it was questionable to some extent. And now Elizabeth's going to talk about how she saw the show evolve. I mean, the pieces evolved so much. In, I mean, in some ways, it's like exactly as it was when I first started working on it. And then in other ways, I, I think everyone's been very in tune with the feedback. It doesn't feel like there's been a lot of egos involved on behalf of the creative team. Everyone feels really committed to telling the best version of the story possible. So I don't know that that's really an interesting tidbit, but it really doesn't always feel that way. You know, it really has felt like collaboration. I think initially, you know, when I read it on the page, I thought, oh, this, this woman is not super likable. And she's kind of basic, you know, and and that's not um, a dig at Brooke's writing at all or Diablo's writing. It was just kind of my first pass at it, but I knew there was more there. And I do feel like for me as an actor, the thing to really hook into is the vulnerability that we, we all go through when we're not feeling great about ourselves and when our when we've become addicted to something or we've fallen into any kind of unhealthy behavior, it becomes like a vicious cycle of like break out of it and then not being able to, and then hating yourself for not being able to. And that's like a really painful trap. So I definitely feel like that part of the character is really relatable to many of us as, as human beings. I can feel so unsexy to someone so beautiful. 
And here's Sean talking about tweaks to the song So Unsexy. So originally in the production at ART, the first song that Steve and Mary Jane sang that sort of sets up their relationship is So Unsexy. And it was originally uh, in their home. When we went into the lab and wanted to focus the show a little bit more and tweak it, but not change it too much because it was so successful and we all felt that it was so successful at ART. We didn't want to, you know, throw any babies out with the bathwater, <laughs> but uh, but still, you know, refine it and tweak it. They realized that a large, very important part of the story between Steve and MJ is that they aren't together enough. Steve is a workaholic and he is constantly staying late at work. And so the challenge became, well, how do we keep him in the story, but make it so that he's gone all the time? So they changed So Unsexy so that it is a split screen to, you know, Steve in his office in New York and MJ at home. And the song is more about the fact that he is, in fact, not coming home as opposed to just that they are having trouble. The trouble is then sort of geographical as well as emotional. Mostly emotional, obviously, but it's definitely in the show now. It is um, The point is very well. It, it's actually physically in front of you. They are not together, you know, in the same space. And, um, and, and it works really well. It's beautiful. And now Diane's going to talk about the struggles of changing the lyrics to a song so many people already know. Well, All I Really Want is such an important song to the show. And it was one of the first songs that when I listened to, I thought, this is exactly the kind of song where the lyrics need to really pop. I just had not remembered the the depth of those lyrics from that song. Like, All I Really Want is Peace Man. All I Really Want is to, to Find a Common Ground. All I Really Want is Deliverance. I mean, such deep lyrics. Yes, we always thought, okay, this could be Frankie's song, right? Because she, you know, all I really want is justice. Frankie is the character in the show that is the young teenager who is so plugged into what is wrong in the world and and her conviction and passion to fix it. So we thought, okay, you know, in, in the musical theater, you always joke, where's your I want song? We're like, well, there's the I want song. But that really went through so many versions. Is it Frankie's song? Is it the family song? Is it a song that sets up the dynamic between Frankie and MJ, which is kind of where we landed? But going Going into Broadway and in the cast album record, we changed some of the lyrics of who sang what. Uh, at, at ART, it was more Frankie. And then when we came to Broadway and we made the album, we bounced around the line. You know, Steve now has a line, I just have the concept that time is flying. That lyric goes to Steve, which it had never been. You know, Steve, who's like the workaholic. And Derek, Derek Klena stands up as Nick and says, all I really want is peace. You know, there's the son who's like just, just wanting peace in his family, like conflict denying, like just wanting it to, to smooth it all over. Another cool moment was in rehearsal, Alanis said, you know, oh, you should change and all I really want. And I am fascinated with the spiritual man to woman. She said, you should say spiritual woman. And and then I thought, oh, no, we can't do that. Like the fans will go crazy. Like that's, you know, all I really want is this. Uh, and I, I am fascinated by the spiritual man. And I never heard it as man, like a masculine man, just like an expression like, hey, man. And then so I said to Alanis, but, but won't the fans like, you know, be jarred by that. And then she said to me, Diane, when I go on tour now, I say spiritual woman and everybody cheers. So I was like, done, got it. <laughs> that went in in a heartbeat. She was so cool. She would watch run-throughs and she would listen to songs like Uninvited. And she would say, yeah, you got to change that lyric. Like she was subtly changing lyrics to reflect um to reflect our story, you know, subtle changes. And e even even super famous songs like You Ought to Know, you know, has lyric changes 
given who's singing it, the character of Joe. We were careful about those lyric changes because we didn't want to, you know, rock the boat of people loving those songs and being distracted as they sing along in their heads or out loud, which I always love in the theater. I know some people can't stand it, but I love when audiences, you know, feel like they have the music in their body and they want to join you. So we just did these very, very careful changes. And in many cases, they were led by Alanis. Another song that went through a lot of versions was Wake Up. That was a song originally that when we first did it, it was more of Nick's song, Derek Klenna. And then going to Broadway and, and the cast album record, we, we divided the song up because we thought Wake Up is a theme that the whole family shares. That whole Healy family, you know, they, they need that outside incident in their community of this incident of sexual assault at this party that enters their house, right? Frankie brings it into their house and then all of a sudden... It, it's like it goes off inside that house and every character in that family needs to wake up. So we divided up those lines. MJ now sings It's Easy Not To towards the end of the song, right? Because it's also, you know, the central arc is, is MJ and what she's hiding, right? That's when I said the secret cause earlier, the secret cause is MJ's assault from 20 years ago when she was Frankie's age. So we're peeling back to that. So it, towards the end of Wake Up before the final climax, it comes back to MJ. So it was so cool to see how, how you can just reassign who sings what, how you sort of change the dramaturgy of the song by dividing the lyrics in different ways and how, you know, that can tell your story. You like snow, but only if it's warm. You like rain, but only if it's dry. And now I want to shift gears and start talking about the cast recording we've been hearing throughout this podcast. Here's orchestrator Tom Kitt to start us off. Well, certainly this is the second album that I've recorded at Electric Lady, which is always such a vibey, wonderful place to be. We also recorded parts of American Idiot there. Because the room is a bit smaller, the recording had to be done a little bit more piecemeal more isolation and overdubbing of instruments. But the wonderful thing is that it really allowed us to take our time and really isolate certain parts and really hear things clearly. We did the same thing with the vocals. We really spent whole days with principals, and then we, we had one day for soprano alto and one day for baritone tenor. And it's just, just really we're able to do this piece by piece. Most of my experience with cast recordings is you open the show and then a week later you get everyone in the studio and you do it for over two days. You get the band and the next day you get the singers and everybody is brilliant and brings their A game. And it, it, it speaks so highly about the level of skill, virtuosity in the Broadway community because with that amount of time, people produce an unbelievable recording. But all things being equal, to have more time is certainly a luxury. And on this album, it felt like we did have a little bit more time to, to really sort of take our time and, and record this in a way that, as I said, you could really isolate and focus on, on certain parts. I thought that was a, a wonderful way to do it. And now here's Elizabeth describing her initial experience recording the cast album. I mean, making 
taking the cast recording was an experience I never in my lifetime imagined I would be in a studio recording Alanis Morissette songs. So it was definitely a pinch me moment. <laughs> and even just like the second I walked into the Electric Lady Studios, which is where we recorded, I was like, I am not cool enough to be here. It was just like really thrilling. But it was, you know, I, I was really, the whole process was really cool. And I really appreciate that. There were a lot of really important people listening, and I say that in that Anne Paulus, our director, was there, and I think, you know, she was really listening with the ears of a director and a storyteller, and and Tom Kitt was there, and he was really listening, you know, with the ears of a musician and really, like, honoring Alanis's music, and, you know, so I think that everyone that was there was helping to shape an album that I think will stand on its own as a rock album, so to speak. And then, but will also really be true to this, this sort of historic thing that is a cast album, which is, you know, a way, I think, for the story to be told just through audio. And now we have Tom explaining some of the deeper thoughts on how to make a great cast recording like this one. I am co-producer on the cast recording, oversaw it's the, the arrangements that I created and orchestrations I created for the for the musical. There's certainly a, a ton of maintenance <laughs> for recording on that. I mean, obviously, I wanted to make sure that I was in service of brilliant record and the sound of the record. And then the question is, what do you enhance it with for theatricality? And the thing about Jagged Little Pill is that there are so many interpretations, even Alanis herself, right? released a, an unplugged version or an acoustic version. I just wanted to make sure, I really wanted to go off of the original album and then see where that took me. So, so in some instances, I'm really delivering a sound that, that you'll recognize. And in some instances, through the use of either a different take on an arrangement or the string writing that I've, I've brought to the table, also enhanced percussion, bringing other instruments into that book besides just the kit. Again, always in service of what was created but allowing the score to morph in terms of what the story is demanding of it. The thing about a cast recording is that you always have to ask yourself how much of the exact stage rendering do you want to capture or how much do you want to look at this and say, this is, this is a different thing. This is a listening experience and you want it to maybe live in the music more. So usually the big questions are around form and what dialogue to include. So for some of the songs, knowing that we were cutting dialogue meant I had to go in and do a little bit of a different arrangement for the album, create a different form just so it has a cohesion. And then there are a couple of places where we're still, I think, talking to this very day about whether we need the dialogue to allow the listener to follow the story of the song. But knowing that this is going to live as a listening experience for a long time, will the listener, after hearing dialogue a number of times, want just you know to live in music as brilliantly as the dialogue is going to be enacted? So I think that's always a question of just what you lose from the stage production to the cast recording to make it more of a listening experience within the songs and within the music of the piece. And now here's Glenn Ballard, who recorded the original version of Jagged Little Pill, singing Tom's praises for his creative choices. I think on every level, Tom Kitt and his arrangements kind of finished my job. I mean, I felt like that, I mean, most of this record, when we made it, it was so handmade, and essentially I was playing everything. And to have these great musicians finish it up and these great vocal arrangements and having more than one person singing at times, an entire ensemble singing these powerful words, it was, he completed the picture. I felt like what we had was always this raw, simple expression of, of where we were, but we never spent more than like a day on, on any record. So, 
yes, I feel I felt like it was completing it. Twenty five years later, I felt like the songs were fully realized. Here's Elizabeth describing the creative approach Tom took to getting the right vocal for the cast recording. I felt like Tom Kit was really good about having us do passes in an you know with a couple of options. So maybe we would do one pass where it was really true to how we had been performing it, and then he would say, "We do a pass, and will you?" Will you sing through this passage more? I often found that if there was something that I was really choosing to act vocally, if that makes sense, I was, you know, I was making a vocal choice that was really influenced by the acting of the moment, meaning maybe it was more like Sprechstimme or I was like laughing as I was singing it. Those kind of things, which I think on stage work just fine. But when you're only hearing it, I think sometimes those kind of things really take you out, especially if you are listening to it, you know, it's more of a pop song rather than a theatrical song. Something that I wish I could do is listen to the entire album without any lead vocal, because the ensemble singing is so sick. It's like exquisite, really tight, really interesting harmonies. I think tells a story completely on its own. And and so I, I'm sort of jealous that, I, you know, I know there are people who in the mixing got to listen to it that way. And I'm like, I think that would be a really cool way to experience the album. I'm broke, but I'm happy. I'm poor, but I'm kind. I'm short, but I'm healthy. Yeah. I'm high, but I'm grounded. I'm sane, but I'm overwhelmed. I'm lost, but I'm hopeful, baby. And what it all comes down to. Obviously, birthing a musical is a hell of a thing to do, but there was another birth along the way with this musical. I was outside walking up to Electric Lady, and I, on the street, ran into Diane Paulus and her daughter, and they were just, like, glowing. And they were like, oh, Lauren just recorded You Ought to Know, and Alanis just had her baby. And so I don't know that it actually happened at the exact same time, but they had been in the studio trying to get in touch with Alanis about, I don't know, a question maybe, or just like, I think Alanis had said, I want to be as present as I can be, even though she was about to give birth. You know, they said, oh, it's weird. She's not like texting back right away. She's usually like really good. And and then she had followed up and said like, so sorry, I just had my baby. <laughs> so, you know, it just feels like metaphorical. And that I do feel like when you make an album, it's like you're giving birth to something. And so for, for the mother of this album to actually physically be giving birth to a, a human being felt sort of special. <laughs> and here's Tom talking about his experience in that moment. Just remember sitting there at the console and Alanis Morissette texted me a picture of, of her new baby. It just felt like a spiritual moment to be in the recording studio working on this brilliant album, feeling her presence. And then she sends a, a picture of, of her newest and greatest creation or one of her greatest. Along the way, you just always want to feel those jolts of, of inspiration and that you're in the perfect place in the world at that, at that moment. And that's certainly how I felt. And isn't it ironic, don't you think? Hold up, wait a second. That's actually not ironic. Right? If we're using irony as defined in Greek tragedy, I don't see how, like, a fly in your beverage applies. That's not irony. That's just, like, shitty. Can I please finish my piece? To start to wind things down, here's actor Sean Allen Krill talking about what he thinks makes the show so unique. I think the show itself is so unique. It's taking the jukebox 
mold and just cracking it wide open as far as I'm concerned. It is as if, and I've had friends say this to me, they come to see the show and they said, it's like Alanis Morissette always planned this to be a musical. These characters were always supposed to sing these songs. And that's what I think this cast, Diane, Diablo, Tom, Alanis, everyone involved in creating it has been so successful in, and that it is just this it's a brand new story and these songs are so beautiful and each one has its own arc because of the way she wrote. They're so actable. They're so beautiful to dive into and they're just, it's just, it's like an actor's dream. And lastly, here's producer Glenn Bauer talking about how emotionally moved he was by the show. From the very first time I saw it, I, I was so intrigued and I thought they were onto something. The full story was being evolved, but scene by scene, I was, enchanted by what was happening um and then of course to see it on stage i had to hold back tears so many times but i, I couldn't hold them back many times I, it's one of the most thrilling things every time i sit and watch the show I, chills up and down my spine absolutely it feels like even though i had something to do with it it to me i'm just overwhelmed by what's happening up there and the sound of it the emotions of the stories and the kind of incredible way that Diablo and Diane have weaved together these many subplots into what becomes really a family drama. And I, it's just a remarkable creative achievement on their part. And I had very little to do with that part of it. I just gave it that I helped to give some raw material to it, you know, for me to have this incredible cast and these great incredible musicians, musicians take what we started with and take it to this uh, whole other level. It's one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given, without doubt. Thank you, Thank you for listening. You can find all of the episodes of Inside the Album on your favorite podcast app. Jagged Little Pill the Musical's original cast recording is out now.